My text this Lord's Day is from Micah chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. And I will make her that halted a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And thou, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion. The kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem." In speaking of Israel's future restoration, we not only have addressed the period of time in which this blessed event will occur according to God's word, as we saw last Lord's Day, the time indicator is stated as follows, in that day. What day? In that day referred to in Micah chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. In that same day as when the nations flow into the house of the Lord, in that same day will Israel be brought unto the Lord. And we have not only addressed the mercy of God, which is glorified and exalted by Israel's restoration, for we saw last Lord's Day, that the Lord says through his prophet, In that day, saith the Lord, will I assemble, assemble her that halteth. That is the very one who was married to the Lord and time and time again went and left the love and the security of her faithful husband. This very same one has been brought back by the irresistible cords of covenant love into fellowship and communion with her heavenly husband. But this Lord's Day, we continue and we must also explain the nature of that glorious restoration of Israel to her heavenly husband, the nature of that restoration. What kind of a restoration will it be? Purely spiritual or will it also manifest certain national and geographical distinctives? Will Israel be restored to her homeland and live without the threat of aggression or extinction from her enemies? Will Israel's reunion with Christ be one in which she picks up where she left off, off in rebuilding the temple of Jerusalem that was destroyed in 70 AD, in reestablishing the Levitical priesthood, and in reinstituting the sacrifices of the Old Testament? Will the fullness of Israel's future restoration be different in any way than that of the Gentile nations? Will her restoration bring her into the church of Jesus Christ? Or will she re uh, maintain some kind of separate and distinct status outside of the church? Such a, a sampling of the questions that we will, by God's grace, seek to answer this Lord's Day. For not every position that maintains a future restoration of Israel 
presents necessarily a biblical view of the nature of Israel's future conversion and restoration. The three main points of today's sermon are the following. First, the glory of Israel's restoration. Secondly, certain questions concerning Israel's restoration answered. And thirdly, practical application from Israel's restoration. Let us then consider the very first point, the glory of Israel's restoration, as we find it in Micah chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, our text for today. As we consider Israel's reunion with her Lord, there seem to be two stages to her future restoration that are herein described by the prophet Micah. First of all, the remnant stage of Israel, wherein the Lord says in Micah 4, 7, and I will make her that halted a remnant. That's the first stage. The second stage is the national stage of Israel, wherein the prophet states, and her that was cast far off a strong nation. Now, it should be, I think, obvious to us all that a remnant and a strong nation refer to two different stages in Israel's development. A remnant signifying a relatively small number of Israel that come to the Lord, that serve him. And a strong nation referring to a relatively large number of the people of Israel who are restored unto the Lord. And so, as we consider that first stage, the stage of, of Israel's remnant, we note that the Lord indicates that he will gather out of a halting or stumbling people a remnant. Israel halted. She stumbled into apostasy at various times in her past history. And the Lord always, in the course of her apostasy, he always preserved a remnant according to his election of grace. He always preserved in Israel those who would faithfully serve him and worship him. Even when the vast majority turned their backs upon the Lord, the Lord preserved a remnant. Listen, for example, to the desperate cry of Elijah as it's found in Romans chapter 11 verses 3 and 4 Lord they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars and I am left alone and they seek my life but what saith the answer of God unto him I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Here's a prophet of God who desperately cries out to God that he believes he is the only one left to faithfully serve the Lord. From all appearance, from all that he could see, 
and was observable to him. The whole nation had departed and left the ways of God. But God reminds him, I have my remnant whom I've selected and I will preserve them. We also see the same truth taught and pronounced by way of a curse upon Israel, a fallen and halting Israel in the ministry of Christ. Consider the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 21. Verse 42. The Lord has just related a parable to the people about a certain husbandman who rented out a vineyard. And those who rented from him, the husbandman, sent servants and eventually sent his son to gather the rent. But each servant that came, they beat, they spat upon. They eventually began to kill them. And finally, the husbandman, the owner, says, I will send my son. Surely they will respect him. He sends his son and they say, here's the heir. Let's cast him outside the vineyard. Let's kill him and then the vineyard will belong to us. This was the attitude of the Jews at the time of Christ. And in fact, after that particular parable, it says that they were particularly upset because they knew that Jesus spoke this parable against them. But consider what we find in verses 42 and following. Jesus saith unto them, Did ye never read in the Scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected, the same is become the head of the corner. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore say I unto you, The kingdom of God shall be taken from you and given to a nation, bringing forth the fruits thereof. And whosoever shall fall on this stone shall be broken, but on whomsoever it shall fall, it will grind him to powder. Here the Lord prophesies concerning the crushing of Israel. She was to become a halting people. But as we find in Romans chapter 11, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says that out of that halting nation at that time, God had preserved a remnant Paul even sees himself as being one of the remnant. He's an Israelite. And as perhaps in your own experience, you have come across converted Jews. They are, as to natural Israel, they are a remnant which God has preserved according to his own election of grace. And so this, dear ones, is the present stage which is preparatory to the next stage of national blessing. The remnant stage leads to the national stage. And so let us consider what Micah says then concerning the second stage of development in Israel's restoration. The second stage then moves beyond God's blessing upon a remnant of Israel to emphasize God's blessing upon the nation of Israel. The Lord declares that he will make her that was cast far off 
a strong nation. That is a mighty nation. When was Israel to be made a strong nation? Well, we might say in a more restricted sense, she did attain a certain national strength after her return from Babylonian captivity and during the Maccabean period, which was approximately 150 years before the birth of Christ, God raised up certain leaders who warred against their enemies and chased the Syrians out of Israel. There was, I believe, to some limited degree of fulfillment of this prophecy, but this is not the ultimate or complete fulfillment to which this prophecy looks. For we see again, as we have considered the time of the fulfillment of this prophecy, in Micah 4.1, in the last days, and then in Micah 4.6, in that day, in that day of the last days, this prophecy will be fulfilled. According to the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, as we have already noted, the complete fulfillment of Israel's restoration yet awaits us in the future. And that is why we continue to pray for her restoration. Now, note also the language that is used by Micah to describe Israel's restoration when she is made a strong nation. In verse 7 of Micah chapter 4, it says, And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. He'll reign over her in a particular and in a unique way. And it says forever. As we compare the reign of the Lord here spoken of with Micah 4.3, in Micah 4.3 it says that the judgment will go forth from the Lord unto all nations. This is speaking of the same time that is referred to in Micah chapter 4 verses 1 through 4. This reign of the Lord over Israel is the same period of time as Micah 4, 1 through 4. We also note concerning this future restoration of Israel in Micah 4, 8. It says, unto thee shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. This certainly seems to indicate that the future reunion of Israel to her Lord will be similar to the blessed rule of Israel in her national capacity under David and Solomon, wherein righteous and godly civil magistrates ruled as God's ordinance, wherein God's ministers led the people of God in one pure doctrine, worship, and government. This appears to be the significance of Micah 4.8. When the kingdom shall come to you, the first dominion, that first and prior rule. This is the testimony of the prophet Micah to this restoration of Israel. Now, in order to develop the nature of Israel's future restoration, I will lead into the second main point at this time. 
And I will ask certain questions concerning Israel's restoration, which I hope will be helpful to you by framing it in a question and then providing an answer that some of the difficulties with regard to Israel's restoration might be made more clear. And so the first question that I would propose is this. Will Israel's future restoration include the rebuilding of the temple and the reinstitution of her priesthood, sacrifices, feasts, and ceremonies as dispensationalists have taught? Absolutely not. Categorically, no. That which was distinctive to the old covenant and which passed away with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ will not be resurrected in the future. Israel will not go backwards when she is restored. She will proceed forward. Israel will be a Christian people, a Christian nation, just like the rest of the Gentile nation, just like all of the Gentile nations. She herself will be a Christian nation. Dear ones, the old covenant temple and priesthood and ceremonies were passing fleeting shadows which were abolished when Christ, the body and the substance appeared. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 1, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that these ceremonies, these sacrifices were mere shadows which pointed to the time of Christ. To rebuild, to rebuild the old covenant ceremonies is like returning to a period of childhood in the development of the church. According to Galatians chapter 4, verse 3, the apostle there teaches us, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. The apostle says that Israel of old was like in kindergarten. They were just learning their ABCs. They were undergoing the elementary things of this world. God was teaching them with pictures and types and symbols. They were in elementary school. You see, dear ones, for Israel to return to the old covenant... That is, the baby stage of her development would be like a young man who is old enough to drive a car returning to his childhood tricycle instead. It doesn't make any sense. It's foolish for Israel to return to that which God has put away, which was a part of her childhood. No, she won't return to that. She will continue forward in Practicing new covenant doctrine, new covenant worship. Furthermore, and most significantly in regard to this question, to return to the old covenant is to deny that Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. In Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, <clears throat> we find these words, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets 
hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. <clears throat> to return that to that which God instituted in the Old Testament is, in effect, to say that Jesus Christ is not now our great high priest. That Jesus Christ has not given us new covenant revelation by which to worship him. That Jesus Christ is not our king who rules over us as our exalted Lord, our resurrected Lord, ascended into the heavenly places. It's basically to cancel out what Christ accomplished, the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ to return to all of these ceremonies of the past. It's to become like Peter in Galatians chapter 2. You remember he wanted to maintain this separation between Jews and Gentiles, between the ceremonies, the food, the dietary laws. And Paul stands up and he accuses Peter of being a hypocrite. Because Peter, by his practice, even if not by his profession, by his practice, was taking the church back to the Old Testament. And it's like those Jews who had come to Christ and who were under severe persecution and were being tempted to return to the outward forms of Judaism in the letter to the Hebrews. Paul's letter to the Hebrews is in various ways trying to exhort, challenge, and encourage them. Don't return to those outward symbols, back to the things of Judaism. Christ has come. We have a great high priest. Let us worship him as he has now commanded us. We find certainly that the church of Jesus Christ is the Lord's new covenant temple. There is no temple to be rebuilt in the future which God will hallow and honor. The church of Jesus Christ is his temple according to Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 19 through 22. The reading and preaching of God's word, prayer, the singing of psalms without instrumentation, and the sacraments are our spiritual acts of worship offered to the Lord in the new covenant. Not the offering of the blood of animals. Not the burning of incense. And there is no holy day to be celebrated in the new covenant except the Lord's Day. We do not return to the feasts and the festivals of the Jews of times past. Is it not significant as you consider these things that Romish worship is in effect a stark return to Judaism? Consider the ornate, consecrated temples an elaborate priesthood, sacrifices, incense, instruments, images in worship, and holy days like Christmas and Easter. A return to the Old Testament, to the Old Covenant. And how sad it is, I believe, in this day and age to see how she is bringing, ever so subtly, bringing back into her pale the very Protestant and Reformed churches that at one time fled from her 
And for the very same reasons that the Protestants cited for leaving Rome in the first place. Her corrupt worship, her tyranny in government, and yet we find the same thing, the same abusive doctrines being promoted so often within Protestant and Reformed churches, how her tentacles are going out and embracing and drawing unto herself those very churches that departed from her at one time. Dear ones, thus any reference in the Old Testament prophecies of Israel's restoration to the ceremonies of the Old Testament. And you will find prophecies which speak of the Messianic age and yet the sacrifices may be mentioned or burning of incense or the celebration of feasts and festivals may be mentioned. But when we see that happening, we are not to understand, and I underscore the word not, we are not to understand by those terms a return to the old covenant worship, but rather we are to understand that God is speaking by way of the Old Testament of approved and authorized worship, which will be in that messianic age. The new covenant worship is in view under those particular terms. And I would, indic- and I would support this conclusion very very uh, clearly, I believe, from one reference, if you will turn with me to Zechariah chapter 14 and show you why we must understand it accordingly. Isaiah, I'm sorry, Zechariah chapter 14. <clears throat> Look with me in verse 16. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. Verse 19. This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. In this time of millennial blessing, the Lord gives us here a prophecy concerning not Israel specifically at this point, but concerning all the nations of the world. And it says that if these nations do not come up to keep the ceremonial law, the Feast of Tabernacles, God will deal with them and punish them. You see the conclusion that we are drawn to that if, in fact, Israel will restore the ceremonial law. It is not simply Israel that will be under the ceremonial law, but all nations that will be brought under the ceremonial law. That's the conclusion if we're to be consistent. I therefore offer and submit to you that what God is saying here is not that. But he is saying that at that particular period of time, God's people in all the nations will worship him by that approved and authorized worship alone, which he has commanded. A second question comes to our attention 
Will Israel's future restoration establish her as a distinct and separate entity from the Church of Jesus Christ, as is promoted again by dispensationalists? Certainly not. Consider with me very briefly the following texts in Ephesians chapter 2, for example. Will Israel maintain an entirely separate existence from the church of Jesus Christ? Ephesians chapter 2, beginning with verse 11. Wherefore, remember that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. From the very outset, we understand that Paul is speaking here at this point to Gentiles. He continues, verse 12, that at that time ye were without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now he begins in verse 13. There's a change that's taken place. Verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace, who hath made both, that is, Jew and Gentile, both one, and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity. What was the enmity that separated the Jew from the Gentile? He tells us, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that is, the ceremonial law. For to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both, that is, Jew and Gentile, unto God in one body, not two separate bodies, but one body, by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you which were far off, that is, to the Gentiles, and to them that were nigh, that is, to the Jews. For through him we both, that is, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, here's the conclusion Paul draws from what he has just said. Now, therefore, ye are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. Paul says... You were once alienated. You were strangers to the covenants of Israel, to the commonwealth of Israel. But now God has made you one and brought you into covenant with him. Even the covenant of Abraham that was made with God's people of the Old Testament. So Gentiles have become partakers of that same covenant In verse 20, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. 
in whom ye also are builded together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. This is the temple of God in the new covenant to which I referred earlier, composed of both Jews and Gentiles, not only Gentiles and the Jews having their own separate and distinct status in separate separation from the church of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> in Romans chapter 11, verse 24, I don't think the apostle could have been more clear with regard to whether there will be a separate status maintained by Israel from the church. When he says in Romans chapter 11, verse 24, For if thou wert cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature. Now he is speaking to the Gentiles. Wild olive branches. Cut out of a wild olive tree. And he continues. And wert grafted contrary to nature into a good olive tree. Into the olive tree of Israel. Based upon the covenant made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you were grafted into that same olive tree, notice what he says. How much more shall these which be the natural branches, those are the Jews, be grafted into their own olive tree? Not a separate status in the future. They will be brought into the church of Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile together. What a glorious time that will be in God's kingdom. <clears throat> and I would simply have you note, <clears throat> there will be in the last days, according to Micah chapter 4, both a fullness of the Gentiles brought in, in the first four verses, and a fullness of Israel brought in, in verses 4 in chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, just as you find, following the same pattern, the fullness of the Gentiles brought in and the fullness of Israel brought in in Romans chapter 11. Perfect harmony and parallel between the two passages. And Israel will be made a Christian nation, not a distinctively Jewish nation returning to her Old Testament Old Covenant roots, but a Christian nation. And Israel will be in covenant with all Christian nations at that time throughout the world. A third question. Will Israel's restoration be spiritual and national, or will her restoration be simply spiritual? That is, is it prophesied that Israel will come to embrace Jesus Christ and be gathered together to form a mighty nation under Christ? Or is it prophesied that she will only embrace Christ while remaining a scattered people throughout the whole world? Interestingly, this is a question over which postmillennials themselves have been divided. I might also mention that our confessional standards do not specifically answer that question. And thus, it has never been viewed as a test of orthodoxy or faithfulness by Reformed and Presbyterian churches, which side of that question one stands. 
Although I do not have time to go into the detailed arguments offered by faithful teachers on both sides of this issue, I will propose to you some matters for your consideration. I do believe that the evidence for not only Israel's spiritual restoration, but for her national restoration as well, may be gleaned from certain passages of Scripture. From our text, first of all, in Micah chapter 4, verses 7 through 8, it is difficult to avoid national blessings poured forth upon Israel when she returns to Christ. For she will become a strong nation. That is a mighty nation, the Scriptures teach. We see, as we have already noted, that the kingdom will be brought to her, that she will be like her first dominion under those faithful and righteous kings like David and Solomon. And there are many passages that we might consider both from the Old and New Testaments, but I'm simply giving you one from the Old and one from the New today to consider. From the New Testament... I would have you consider what the Lord says in Luke chapter 21, verse 24. Luke 21:24. Speaking of Israel, specifically Israel as a nation, Israel within Palestine, and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. I would submit to you that the inference that we should draw from that passage is that once Jerusalem is restored the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. Or once the time of the, full, uh, time of the Gentiles is fulfilled, Jerusalem will be restored. And again, in that historical context, he is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem, of the devastation wrought by Rome upon the nation within the boundaries of Palestine in particular. And I would also have you turn with me in the Old Testament to Ezekiel chapter 37. Will Israel experience not only spiritual restoration, but a national restoration? And a national restoration in her homeland. In Ezekiel 37, I'll begin with verse 21. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and will gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. 
And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all. And they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with their idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions. But I will save them out of all their dwelling places wherein they have sinned, and will cleanse them. So shall they be my people, and I will be their God. And David, my servant, shall be king over them. And they all shall have one shepherd and they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes and do them. And they shall dwell in the land that I have given unto Jacob, my servant, wherein your fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. I submit to you that again we might find a restricted fulfillment of this prophecy, a limited fulfillment of this prophecy in the return of Israel from Babylonian captivity and in the restoration of the nation to some degree under Ezra and Nehemiah. Zerubbabel ruling who is in the lineage of David over the people. In the time of the Maccabees, and again, the, the victories that were won by the Maccabees within the land, there's a limited fulfillment, I believe, of those particular, of that prophecy and those events. But I would submit to you that the full and complete fulfillment of this prophecy is yet in the future, when Jesus Christ will reign from heaven over his people as king in the messianic times and at that time she will be restored from the nations unto her own land and she will serve Christ under Christ's authority with all the Gentile nations covenanted together with them and following in the ways of the Lord James Durham a minister of the Church of Scotland and contemporary to men like George Gillespie and Samuel Rutherford has noted the following in his commentary on Revelation 16.12. He says, Neither can that promise made to Israel in Deuteronomy 30, verses 2 through 4, that whenever they should repent, the Lord would gather them from the nations whither they were scattered and return them to their own land, be thought void and null after Christ's coming, especially considering the general repentance and mourning which is to accompany their conversion. Therefore, it would seem by that promise that they may expect their own land, it being a part of God's engagement to the natural seed of Abraham. The last question. Is Israel's present occupation within the land of Palestine a fulfillment of these prophecies? In 1948, she began occupation and has defended 
herself against various enemies and still is within the land. Is Israel's present occupation within the land of Palestine a fulfillment of these prophecies? I think not. For in these prophecies, the restoration of Israel is always applied to Israel in her converted state. When she returns to the Lord, when she is converted, God will bring her scattered throughout the nations into her land. She has not returned to the Lord in a converted state. Return to the land in a converted state. She is in gross unbelief. She despises the Lord Jesus Christ. In Leviticus chapter 26, verses 40 through 42, God promises that when she repents, when she confesses her sin and acknowledges that she has sinned against the mighty God, God will have mercy upon her and restore her if she is amongst the nations. He will restore her to her land. Thus, I would submit it would be no denial of the position that is presented herein if Israel were yet overcome by her enemies and if Palestine became the possession of the Arabs. It would not in any way annul the prophecies which God has thus made For I would submit to you again, she is not fulfilling her prophecies while in her unconverted state. Secondly, I will say that when Israel is converted, then her enemies will no longer occupy or own parts of Jerusalem or parts of her land as is presently the case. See, presently, I would would say this cannot be a fulfillment of prophecy because she yet has aggressive nations who occupy parts of Jerusalem and occupy parts of her land, who seek her extinction. When these prophecies are realized, that will no longer be the case. So I would affirm that the present status of unbelieving Israel does not fulfill the prophecies related to her glorious restoration. Third and final point, I would like to make some practical application from Israel's restoration to us today, who are God's people. First of all, if God will grant Israel a restored nation and a restored land in this life, in history, I ask you, dear ones, will he not provide for you and for me, his bride, our daily bread? Will he not provide all that we need within this life according to his promises in Matthew chapter 6? Will he only be faithful to Israel to restore her to an an earthly inheritance and yet forget about his people and supplying their earthly needs within this life? God forbid. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 31 through 33. 
Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knoweth that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. We become, dear ones, so anxious. We are so prone to anxiety, to worry, to unbelief about how God will provide for us. Dear ones, rest in His promise. Know that thus saith the Lord God who cannot lie. He will provide all that you need and even provide them according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Rest in Him and in His promises for your daily bread. And pray for them. Jesus has given to us that petition in the Lord's Prayer that we might call out to Him to provide for our daily needs in this life. God doesn't promise us riches and wealth of a material nature. God does not promise us many homes. He doesn't promise us many cars. But He promises that He will provide for us our food and clothing and shelter. And when we do not have it ourselves, that He will provide homes and brother and sister and mother and father and lands through what mercy is shown to us through the saints. God will be faithful. A second application. If God will grant to Israel a restored nation and land in this earthly life, dear ones, will He not grant to you and me who are His bride spiritual houses, wealth, and family in this life as He has promised? I just mentioned that that was another way in which God cares for us. When you consider that Peter says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, Lord, we've given up all to follow thee. What will we have? And the Lord goes through a list of things that God, that he will provide for them. He says that those who give up all to follow Christ, God will provide them with houses and with relatives if relatives should desert them for their following the gospel, for following the cause of Christ. God will provide them with new relatives. He will provide them with new homes in this life. And He will provide them with new lands if they forsake land to follow Christ. How will that be? Well, I submit to you, He'll do so through the mercy of Christ that is shown to those who are in poverty, those who are downtrodden, those who are oppressed, God will through fellow brothers and sisters lift them up to enjoy their homes, their lands, to enjoy their, them as their family in this life 
And God will provide for them, Jesus says, eternal life and the life to come. The third application is that the Apostle says concerning Israel as a nation that the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. They are irrevocable. God has called Israel as a nation to be a nation unto himself. And he has given her particular gifts, namely, as we have articulated this Lord's Day, the land. The gifts and calling of God are without repentance. And if that is true with regard to a national earthly capacity and a real estate in Palestine, dear ones, how much more the heavenly gifts and eternal calling of God are without repentance to all of God's dear children. You see, the land that was given to Israel spoke of our eternal inheritance. It speaks of what God has promised to give all His people in heaven. And if God will give Israel the earthly blessing, how much more He will bestow upon you, His people, the heavenly blessing. Do you look forward to the heavenly reward? Do you think about what heaven means? There will be no tears. There will be no curse. There will be no temptations, no sin. But one of eternal communion, unbroken fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. What a joy. What an anticipated blessing of not having to fight that battle in the inner man which constantly rages within us anymore, but being totally consecrated unto the Lord. And finally, just as faith in Jesus Christ is Israel's only hope of salvation and blessing in the future, Israel's restoration, dear ones, does not depend in any way upon Israel and upon her faithfulness, and upon her goodness, upon her works of merit or righteousness, Israel's restoration rests squarely in the covenant of God, rests squarely in hope of salvation through Jesus Christ alone. And so, by way of application, our hope, today is only in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not in our knowledge. It is not in our resources, our wealth. It is not in anything we possess. Our hope alone, dear ones, is in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel was not offered to the Jews only, but it was offered to the Gentiles as well. The gospel, dear ones, is not offered to the righteous or to the sinless, but the gospel of Jesus Christ is offered to those who are unrighteous, who are ungodly, those who are sinners and in need of a Savior. At Christ's first coming, Israel as a people were depicted 
as those who approached very close to the altar and spoke of all of the ways in which God should look upon them with favor because they, they tithed and they prayed and they did all of these works of righteousness. But dear ones, in that day when Israel is restored as a nation, she will not be like that Pharisee who approached very close to the altar and looked down his nose at the publican who stood afar off. But she will be like the publican. And she will acknowledge her dependence upon the Lord and she will beat her chest and cry out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And she will walk away justified. And on the basis of that, dear ones, on the basis of the mercy of Christ, children, listen closely. Because God extends to all His salvation. All who will come. All who will believe in Christ. All who will take hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ's sacrifice is sufficient for all. He therefore invites all of you to come to Him. Do not think that you can put this off whether you are old or young. Do not think that you have many more years to live. Come to Christ now. Don't think because you are a privileged people, because you share in the external covenant blessings, because you are in a Christian family or attend Puritan Reformed Church, that for that reason you are saved. Come to Jesus Christ. Embrace the promises which the Lord makes to you, His people, now. For He, dear ones, is not only the, the Savior of the Jews. He is the Savior of the world. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do cry out to Thee now as Thy people that Thou would help us to see more clearly the blessedness which Thou hast promised to Thy ancient people, Israel. But Lord, let us not lose sight of the blessings which Thou hast promised to us. For Father, we as Gentiles will be joined with thine ancient people and are joined with them in their olive tree in those same covenant blessings and we reap the spiritual blessings of those promises made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham and those who are in Christ are heirs of Abraham heirs according to promise O Father we praise thee for the richness and the glory of thy salvation. We praise thee for free grace, that there is nothing that we can do to merit it. Not even our faith is meritorious, but is granted to thee, given to us by gift, by the Holy Spirit. We ask our Father that thou would cause us to walk uprightly before thee, that we would be a holy people, giving thee thanks, cherishing, Father, thee, the promises thou hast made to us. 
embracing them and not taking them for granted. We ask, Lord, these things in the name of Christ. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.